Hello, my name is Greg Nagy. I'm a guitar player, a singer, a songwriter, I guess a producer. Sometimes that sounds pretentious. Um, and I perform live as well as record. And you are listening to Talking Blues. Do you consider yourself one over the other? Are you more of a singer than a guitar player? Are you more of a songwriter than a... That is an awesome question. I only had one other person ask that, and I was stuck then, too. Um, <laughs> it's okay to be stuck. It's the story of my life, most times. Um, I feel like, as cliche as it sounds, I'm a creature of inspiration. In other words... I don't know on any given day when I wake up whether I'm going to be trying to book gigs that day. Whatever I do that day, it seems like that's what I'm doing. That's the hat I put on. And if if, if, if it just feels like this is where I am today, this is what I'm doing. Um, and that's part of that's a function of being self-directed. I don't have anybody, anybody telling me what hat I'm going to put on, right? So I get up in the morning and some days I feel like, well, I really want to just transcribe some guitar solos and... And sometimes they have nothing to do with anything that I'm writing or any genre that I'm particularly interested in as far as my career goes. But it's more just the challenge of getting more familiar with the guitar, right? And then other days it's like I could find myself wanting to woodshed vocals. Again, something that I don't necessarily want to go after completely, but just something that's challenging like a Frank Sinatra tune, which I cannot sing like Frank Sinatra. But there's certain things about his vocal phrasing that's appealing and the where, where he pauses. And and then uh, as far as writing, it's just... Um, I always start with the melodies first, and the words seem to come later. So I, don't, I wouldn't say that I sit down and try to write, you know, basic poems and then put them to music. It's more the opposite, you know. So some days I get up and I have a melody in my head, and, I, and then I'm thinking, well, what words would fit in here? And then... Uh, other times I'm working on other people's projects or they're asking me to be an extra set of ears to give them feedback on mixes and arrangements and and that's fun for me too and so I I don't know. I don't know which one is more more dominant than the other. It just depends on you know what I'm working on in the moment. Does that make sense? Which one do you have to work on more? Oh, as far as you know, you know from a maintenance standpoint uh, there's two different things here. There's one like developmental, you know, standpoint, right? Which, um, and then I'm going to be 59 next month. So I, I'm starting to think in maintenance mode now because, <laughs> you know, I don't think the vocal range is going to get any higher. <laughs> in fact, it, you know, in fact, it's heading in the other direction. Um, so maintenance mode, it's like, well, there's a physicality to singing that has to be, you know, attended to. There's a, physicality on the guitar that has to, that has to be maintained and oh, which one requires more attention oh live performing probably like having your repertoire and kind of almost thinking of it like um let's say you have 30 songs in a given night that you have to perform right and i can never predict i can sort of predict which ones i'll do really well or pretty decently based on the fact that i've been playing them for 30 years <laughs> And I could do them with my eyes. I could go into a room, turn the lights off, pitch blackness, and 
and not struggle to find the notes on the guitar or sing it or remember the words or anything because it's just like walking from one side of the room to the other. Then I have other songs that I'm adding to it, and maybe I added six months ago, and, and you know, I do pretty diverse set like at these restaurant gigs that I do. So maybe I'm doing a Dear Prudence by uh, the Beatles. All of a sudden I get to a gig and I just blow it. I, like I'll blow something. Well, that gets moved towards the top of my to-do pile for, you know, working on the performance repertoire. It's kind of like if you had them all on a index card, right? And you just kind of move the ones that you toward the front of, of your to-do thing. And then the other ones just they're, they're givens, but, but it changes. Like I'll, I'll have tunes I've been doing like, for a while. What is blowing it to you? Like, give me an example. Well, of more than anything else what? is forgetting a lyric or forgetting a line. So again, okay. you know, that's part of me going on 59, but, um, but occasionally there could be, you know, I'll record my performances frequently and occasionally, you know, maybe I can't hear myself that well in a certain situation and my vocal placement gets weird and you know we midwesterners uh tend to be a little bit nasally anyhow you know just the way we talk so if all of a sudden i hear myself singing like i'm from nashville and i'm not really trying to sound like that not that there's anything wrong with that um you know then then i just say okay well there's a physicality or a feeling of where you place your vocal that will affect the vocal tone that you can feel while you're singing. So even if you can't hear it well, even if your monitors and the sound coming back to you isn't that great, you can kind of feel, oh, yeah, this is what it feels like. Does that make sense? Yeah, there yeah. was a gal on one of those, um, she just came to me, on one of those, um, I don't know, American Idol or there's a YouTube video out there. And I can't think of her name, but she, and this is, Either she was playing a ukulele or something, but she got up there and started singing, and she was completely deaf, literally just completely deaf, and she was pitch perfect. And they asked her, like, what is that? And she said, well, you know, and we know this. I mean, I think we know this, music vibrations, and they, she got used to what the sensations of, in her own physical, you know, head space, you know, and her cheekbones and her throat in her chest what a note would feel like so that's an extreme example of getting comfortable you know what i'm saying with mm -hmm. with what yeah, to yeah. do in those situations and then the other one is as funny as it sounds you know i've done shows where the just the lights were horribly in my eyes or they were glaring off my guitar and if i hit a song i wasn't that familiar with and i'm up on this stage playing and i look down at my hand and i can't see my hand because of the way the lights are hitting that's terrifying, by the way. But then the the remedy for that is to come home, shut off the lights in the room completely in my practice room and see if I can play that guitar part without seeing it. Oh, interesting. And it's almost akin to like a, a, a you know, how a trombone player has a certain length of their arm. You know, they just know that's that note and that's that note. Well, it's kind of akin to that on guitar when you're going up and down the fretboard. It just feels... You know, this feels like an A note without having to see it. My arm would be roughly here or there. So the only time that gets weird is if you play a different kind of guitar. If you're playing, a, they have different scale lengths, <laughs> lengths, you know. So if you're used to doing it on a Strat and then you grab a Les Paul, that could backfire. You know, this is insider baseball, I guess. But um, <laughs> people are like, what's a Strat? Oh. Um, 
No, I'm sure your listeners know what a strat is. Um, you can edit that out <laughs> if you want. <laughs> We're talking Stradivarius violin, right? Stradivarius, by the way. Well, violin player. Oh, no, okay. Well, there you go. I forgot you did all those classical folks. Yeah, all those those stringed instruments. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they don't have frets, so they have to get that, uh, that physicality of it. So, so there's that. Um, things that could go wrong. Here's the problem with solo performances in... Places like restaurants. One could say that you're doing well if the crowd appreciates you. The flip side would be you didn't do well if they didn't clap. Well, on the surface, yes. But I always feel like it's important to record yourself because I swear to you, I've had gigs where I think I was horrible and the crowd thought I was walking on water and my tip jar was overflowing. I had other nights where I thought I was singing and playing great, and it was crickets, man, <laughs> between songs. <laughs> so it's kind of like recording yourself is probably a good way to go, you know, oh, I, I wasn't that good that night. You know, I need to work on this. I don't care how much they clapped. And on the flip side, man, what's wrong with those people? <laughs> that was pretty good. <laughs> so so there's that there's that element to it, that correct redirection and self-correction. How how easy is it for you to listen to yourself and be critical of what you've what you played one night? Um I used to I used to I mean to be honest, to be brutally honest, I used to get depressed because I had all my heroes in my head, you know, and I'd be like, I don't sound like my hero, you know, whoever that might be. And but now it, it alleviates a little bit of the anxiety that goes into wondering what am I supposed to practice today? Like when, you know, you get up and you go, what, what? Cause nobody's telling you what to do. You're, it's all self-directed. So you get up and you say, well, I don't know. I'll listen. I'll, I'll listen to the last performance. They'll tell me what I need to practice. <laughs> you need to practice. T- stop telling those dumb dad jokes between songs or something, you know, whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> or, or you know, but again, it's tough in some of the places that I'm playing. Uh, you know, over the years, it's been such a mixed bag. You know, either I'm playing in front of twenty thousand people, or I'm or I'm playing in front of twenty, and the twenty thousand only happened once. That sounded a bit grandiose, but still. But you do play big theater gigs. And then- I have, yeah, 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 yeah. Doing that stuff with uh with Etta James's guitar player Bobby Murray and. And then um, uh, years ago, I was with a band called Root Doctor, and we opened for Macy Gray and, and you know, Pointer Sisters. And Bobby and I were supposed to open for Robert Cray in Detroit in March. Anyhow, so shows like that are really, you know, fun and exhilarating. And and then the flip side is playing, you know, the I play like three different barbecue joints around the state. And you just don't know. A lot of times the audience didn't even know that, I don't even know if I can call them an audience. I didn't even know that there would be music there, you know, and you never know what people are going through. You know, a table of people could have just left a funeral for all you know. That's what I like to tell myself when I don't clap. Because <laughs> there's nothing like a good barbecue after a funeral. <laughs> well, clearly you're not from Michigan. <laughs> How? We like to eat over here. No, <laughs> we just give us any reason. <laughs> Oh, Aunt May, Aunt May died. Let's go eat. <laughs> Sorry. How has the last two years, and I don't know how much of that, how much you've been affected by the pandemic in, in Michigan um, and how many how many times things were shut down completely, but hmm. how has that whole experience of the pandemic 
affected you um, in the way that you practice, in the way that you learn things, in the way that you write? It does kind of... I don't want to say the word self-discipline because that I don't think I'm that self-disciplined. I did. I think if I didn't like this stuff as so much, I I wouldn't make myself do it. So I don't know. But the passion and then the idea that um, you know, music is. I hope I think it's about human connection, and so all of a sudden, when you feel removed from human connection. It's like you start to feel uninspired to play music. Like like if I have a gig coming up and I know I'm going to be in a room with other people, there's like an inspiration to get prepared for it. And I'm about to have these, you know, and I don't want to sound too pretentious, but these musical conversations with people. Because that's what it kind of is if, they, if, if it's working. And then all of a sudden I got a taste of what it must be like to be a DJ because I started doing my streams on, via Facebook and whatnot during the pandemic and so i've got these cloud lights and these little gopro type knockoff cameras and and um and 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 the feedback isn't instantaneous you're guessing i mean you could watch comments but there's still a delay it's just it's disconnected i was grateful for it i I stayed afloat because of it in the beginning you know people would tip pretty good and then everybody else got every other musician got wise to it and then it started flooding Facebook and um but um I don't know it was I've saw other musicians and and particularly I some successful ones who said they were just using the time to just step away from all of it you know it's the first time in their life that they got to just you know decompress from the business and I'm assuming they had money to do that but um yeah, I don't know. It it was it was a different it was a different set of challenges. Um particularly early on, you know, when nobody knew where things were going. My last gig was in, in Michigan was at a place in Frankenmuth, Michigan, which I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's it looks like you've just stepped into old-timey uh German village. Right. So and, is that like the did Christmas Town, isn't it? Yeah, Christmas Town, and they have all these chicken places, and it, but and everybody's how and you know in typical you know not knocking my German friends, but in typical German fashion, everything is just like like you can get a fine for having a leaf on your front lawn. So it's almost like Pleasantville. <laughs> it's so beautiful. I hate to say it. I mean, my yard doesn't look like that, but I'm part Hungarian, so I don't know what we do. But anyhow, um, <laughs> but <laughs> that was a digression. Um, you can. Uh, so I, my last gig was, I want to say March fourteenth. Of, oh my gosh, everything's a blur. What, that was twenty 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 twenty, and uh, that very next week, it was like a whole other world, and so there was different periods of the pandemic where I wasn't sure what to do, and how to do it. Pretty quickly, I started doing the streams, and that seemed to help. But it, it's not the same thing. Oh, I can imagine. I mean, it must be so. Like, does it feel like you're just practicing to yourself? Mm-hmm. I did it so much in the beginning that, that I didn't. I didn't feel nervous doing it. That's the other thing too. It's like before I started playing music for a living in the early '90s, I I, I was kind of sort of working toward a PhD in sociology at Wayne State in Detroit. And they had me teaching classes, and I've never, never been nervous standing in front of a room of people talking. 
because I could just make eye contact, you know. And that kind of translated into music. I Most times, I can count on one hand playing music where my legs would shake and I wouldn't know but and I wouldn't know why even it doesn't it could be could be a big gig it could be a small gig in quotation marks I mean they're all big gigs but you know what I mean (laughs) of Um, course I mean you don't want to stink at any of them but I did find that there is a correlation between crowd size and you might have heard this before like you would think that the larger the crowd the more nervous you get but it's been the opposite for me. The more intimate and smaller the venue, the more I feel like I'm being, you know, revealed or whatever. Right. Well, that makes sense. And the other thing is, if you got 20 people in the room, and you know, if you got 20,000 and five people leave, it's okay. If you got 20 and five people leave, well, that doesn't look so good. <laughs> so you got to like extra anxious to like hold them, and you can't go. It's already echoey in here as it is. Um, so there's that, but the, so the smaller the crowd, the more nervous I would tend to get. And so now all of a sudden I'm down to no people. And I remember sometimes just getting ready to start and I'm like deer in the headlights, you know, just, oh my gosh. Okay. Take a breath. And I had a couple, a couple streams where I'd be three or four songs in and I almost wanted to just shut it off just reach over shut the button off and say it was a technical difficulty because i couldn't get settled i couldn't focus i felt my brain just bouncing all over the place and i'm like oh my gosh this is horrible this is horrible i'm gonna just turn this off i didn't um you know whether i should have or not i don't know it's still on the internet i could go find those but um so that was different that was different that perseverance that idea like i said it's like this is must be what it's like for a radio dj to operate because they don't necessarily have immediate feedback as to whether or not their programming is good. So in my case, it would be, you know, as far as programming goes, not just performance, it would be song selection, you know, like, was that the right one to do? You know, you know, I, I never did cover uh, REM's um, it's the end of the world as we know it. Cause I thought that was too much. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> is there anything about, Having gone through that, that you've learned that's made you a better musician? Mm. Man, that's a good one. <sighs> Probably. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not working that much yet still, so we'll find out. Well, but I should know. I, I think, I think Yes. Not not because of the, not because of maybe what the most immediate answer would be things that don't kill me you make me stronger you know how people misquote Nietzsche all the time um, like I just did um, <laughs> but more in the idea of like while you're performing if you're distracted if you're uncomfortable how do you get comfortable with being uncomfortable you know learning to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. So it's another challenge of something that's throwing you off. How can you still perform? So in that sense, yes. I did take several months off too, and sometimes I get mad at myself, like, oh, I could have been practicing then. But, you know, I kind of hit a point where I just started binge-watching Netflix and <sighs> I'm probably eating too much. But <laughs> a lot of barbecue. <laughs> <laughs> Going to funerals, going to barbecues. (laughs) If all Um, else fails, you know, (laughs) eat some pork. What made you quit or stop for a couple months? 
kind of a general, I mean, you know, being brutally honest, just kind of a general depression and, you know, this, this exist, you know, existential angst of like saying, you know, it's not even an issue of like, what is it, what is it that I'm going to do for a living? It's more of an issue of who, who am I now? And it's like, you know, you, you're not supposed to affix too much of your ego, you know, your sense of self to, to what's a vocation. But the thing for me is I always looked at music as vocation and avocation, what I love to do and what I, you know, what I do hopefully for a living. And all of a sudden that all started getting more blurred. It's always been blurry, you know, regardless. But during the pandemic, it was like, well, if you can't make money at this, what's the point? When whatever you do for a living, whether you're retiring or whatever the reasons are that you can no longer do it, there just becomes this existential crisis. Yeah. Like, who am I? What do I do now? This is what I've always done. And one can say, well, switch the gears, make it a hobby during these. You know, think of it as though you were doing a hobby. It still should bring you some joy. And that I can see that, but I couldn't do it. And and so then I felt bad for feeling bad about it, and that kind of compounded itself. So there was a general, you know, mild to moderate depression and then concern about, like, you know, getting older and, okay, if it's not music, what's it going to be? I mean, and not even concern necessarily about, well, look, it's during the pandemic. You obviously can't play out. Well, what's it going to look like after the pandemic? I mean, a lot of these places I'm I'm working at, you know, this is these places don't necessarily need music to function. You know, they were just doing it because they liked it. I mean, I know they made some money off of it, but but if their business goes down, as it has, still show you know restaurants are still hurting here in Michigan. You know, uh, low staff and and you know even now, you know people have developed different habits for dining out. They come in, they eat, they leave. You know, the idea with some of those places, you come in, you eat, you have a couple of drinks, you hang out a little bit longer, that's where they're making their money off you, or at least breaking even on a bad night, you know? Right. Um, so the question was, is, is, it, is that going to be there after all this? And if not, what am I going to do? So I started teaching again recently. Started teaching guitar again. I'm up to about... 14 students and I do that Monday through Thursday and I'm just leaving the weekends open for gigs how are you finding teaching uh, I I love teaching uh, all different levels all different approaches um, a lot of them now are beginners and so the challenge there is to try to remember what it's like to not know anything about guitar I mean, anything. Like, what's a fret? I don't know. You know, what's a string? I mean, I know they probably can figure out what the string is. <laughs> well, I got this one. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Hope he's not listening. <laughs> I'm kidding. That was a joke. Maybe. <laughs> uh, anyhow, so anyhow, Johnny, he doesn't... No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> uh, Did you get back into teaching very quickly? Was that easy for you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I just did a couple, like, local community group Facebook posts, and they just, all within the last few weeks, started coming out of the woodwork. And the thing about what I like about it, you know, I didn't totally touch on that. I was making fun of Johnny. Um, what? There's no you don't Johnny. have a picture of Johnny, do you? There's no Johnny. <laughs> 
Johnny. Uh, what you know? I hope I don't get a student named Johnny, especially <laughs> about the time the podcast comes out. He probably won't. Well, I'll make sure he can't see it. Anyhow, so to there's a couple different things. One, I I've heard the analogy of like and you know pro basketball players or college basketball players going back and working on rudiments and trying to understand just breaking it down. You know, like what, how does a layup work? You know, and with guitar, if you have to explain something to somebody, particularly a beginner. You know, just even like how the notes are structured on a guitar, that's a lot of stuff. And and sometimes when I'm doing it, I, I, I see things I didn't see before. Like, oh, oh, wait a minute. I didn't think of that. And one of the biggest epiphanies I had uh, years ago teaching, which I've since lost, which bugs me. I forgot what it was. But I don't know if you play guitar at all. Or I'm afraid not. I'm sure, I I'm might sure take a lesson li- or two. I'm sure some of your listeners, you know, I teach, by the way. So just so you know, I teach. And I'll never tell people if you're struggling. I'll use a fake name. Um, so the guitars, in pretty straightforward terms, is tuned weird compared to like a four string bass. So the note relationship between like an E and the A string, the space between those two notes, is the same as the space between the next two strings right and that's wait that's and and, and if you yeah go ahead did you say it's different than the bass i thought the first the top the first four are the same but wait, i'm okay. saying in in in, in total all together once once you get to the weird strings up top this is where it gets weird oh, okay. like once you get to the high okay unless somebody wants to be cool and have a six string bass but that's a whole nother story <laughs> um and we don't talk about those people i'm kidding i'm kidding i'm not a purist so so if you were to just simply say, you know, do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, just give the numbers instead of, right? Yeah. So the fourth note, do, re, mi, fa, do, fa, or do, fa, do, fa, do, fa, or, you know, here comes the bride. That's the interval, right? I, I should have sang that better, but she got the idea. <laughs> I'll do it like Sinatra next time we talk. Um, that's the relationship between each string. They're different note values, but that's the relationship between each string. Until you get to these two particular strings that, you know, they don't do that. They right. do something else. So all of a sudden they're like, ah, what? Why does this work on these two strings but not on these two strings? Yeah, because some joker thought he would tune this <laughs> one string to a third instead of a fourth. I don't know why. One night, two in the morning. It hit me why. I can't remember. (laughs) (laughs) I'm on the edge of my seat. There was a reason. There was some kind of reason, and it had to do with harmonic overtones and blah, blah. I was pretty, I thought it was like, wow, I finally get it, why this makes sense. And and I couldn't tell you now for, for anything. But so that's those things when a student asks you that question. Why can I play this like here, but I can't play it here? I'm like, I don't know. Because some joker in fourteen nineteen thought it was a good idea to tune the guitar like this, I guess. I don't know. But on, I, I would imagine there are moments where you say something and you see the student get it. Oh, uh, the light bulb moment, as they say. Yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's a, especially if they're like early high school, middle school, and you and you can just tell. You can tell by the look on the kid's face, whether they're just struggling. Maybe, you know, I have a couple, they just eventually open up to me and tell me they, 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 don't, they don't have any friends at school and 
and so on and so forth. And and to see them just get something and then light up is the most, It's it really is rewarding. And it's, I mean, I've substitute taught over the years to help supplement my income. And that was okay, but that's like 30 kids, 25, 30 kids in a room. You really can't have that one, you know, obviously one-on-one consistent now, granted, I mean, these lessons are 30 minutes, 20 of it's intensive, and then 10 minutes of re- reiteration and, you know, recapping and, you know, going back over all of it, like like how I did that. Yeah, yeah. Re- reiterating, recapping, going back over it. It'll haste you later. <laughs> um, <laughs> I hope I get it. <laughs> Ooh, look, light bulb. <laughs> So, so the so the idea is that um you you put some meaning in this person's life, you know that's the thing. It's like, yeah, I'm not ending world hunger here. Yeah, I'm not dismantling a bomb. I'm not doing anything super heroic, but it just feels meaningful. It feels good, you know. So I do like teaching, and I have friends who 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 remain nameless. I mean, there's Bob. I'm kidding. <laughs> um, who are Highly professional musicians tour with big names who just said they cannot stand teaching because, as we talk about it, they kind of can't. Some students just aren't going to make it. And and that could be a function of the way you're teaching, but it also could mean they're just not into it. And that's okay, especially if their parents you know, have them like in 12 different after school activities and, you know. They're just overwhelmed with the kid because they want to enrich their life, and then the kid doesn't practice, and or they find out that when you press down on guitar strings for the first few weeks, it kind of hurts sometimes. And I tell the parents now when they bring in a young kid, I say, look, some do it, some make it, some don't, and there's a variety of reasons of why that might happen, but more than anything else, if they aren't drawn to it, it's okay to still expose them to this because maybe if, even if they just get a little bit out of it they got more than somebody who never tried and maybe when they're older and they see somebody playing a guitar on stage they'll at least have more of an appreciation of what they're witnessing so so do you ever does it ever take you back to the 14 year old greg who started playing guitar 14 year old greg was a trip (laughs) 14 year old greg would fall asleep with a guitar on his belly and you're gonna like this you know being canadian Playing "Fly by Night" by Rush. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I don't think I was a, didn't I? Didn't you just post something about your love? Yeah, of Rush? yeah, 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 yeah. I'm, 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 I'm not as a roots musician. I'm not supposed to admit these things, but I was a big Rush fan and was has been have been for, throughout the years for a variety of reasons. Um, as I've gotten older, it's just for the envy <laughs> of of seeing guys in a band who've known each other for so long. Who had the same work ethic? Who have had have had the same work ethic since they were young, and just developed a sound that was like no other. I mean, I mean, I, I could go on and on, you know. But and I, so you know, so that so young Greg would listen to that kind of stuff and and just could not put his guitar down. But I don't think I was a horrible student in high school. Barely graduated high school. Um. So I'm not going to say I had huge discipline to play the guitar. I just was drawn to it, you know. 
just drawn to it. it was a, and and even now, music is most generally, with the exception of my few months of Netflix binge watching and eating barbecue, <laughs> I uh, <laughs> I music is the first thing I think about when I get up in the morning, and it's the last thing I think about before I go to bed. Did you figure you know? out the uh, fly by night? When I was was fourteen, I thought I did. It probably sounded horrible. I have no idea. I didn't record it. Thank goodness. Um, and and then closer to the heart. And uh, I'm pretty sure I had the twenty one twelve album. And and I literally have not played. Uh, I haven't played that fly by night since I was fourteen. But hang on a second. Where'd it go? Hang on a second. Let's see if my brain cells are still intact. I literally haven't touched this since. 14 something like that yeah yeah that's what i thought it was that's all i knew so my (laughs) friends would come over my four friends would come over and it would be me going oops literally i haven't played these since i was 14 by the way um and they would come over and i would play the intros to like 12 songs and by the third song, they would get mad and say, because they would start, they'd start rocking out. This was the 70s, man, bro. <laughs> they'd start rocking out with me, you know. We had the feathered hair, and they were bopping their head around, and then I'd stop, and they'd, they'd get kind of mad. And by the third time, they would just leave. You don't know you don't know any song all the way through? <laughs> no. <laughs> so that's, anyhow, I digress. Yeah, so, yeah, if you want to take lessons, I'll teach you the intro to Fly By Night. <laughs> but not yes. the whole song. Not the whole, no, I, that's extra. <laughs> Because then I have, have to, to learn, learn it. it. <laughs> exactly. So uh, how did how did the guy who loved Rush and I guess classic rock get into soul and R and B and blues? Oh, I was I was I was um, nineteen years old, and a friend of mine, uh, Big John Selly, sounds like a made up name, but it's true. Big John Selly was all American. Football player, scholar. He uh, he put on Albert King's "Drowning on Dry Land" for me, and very quickly, and I looked down at my arms, and this has never happened. Now, don't get me wrong, "Fly by Night," all those songs made made me excited and happy, and got me going. But I looked down at my arms, and I'm like, "Why do I have goosebumps?" And I did, you know, for real. I had goosebumps, and I just—it was like, shoot. Well, when you're 19, you can spend a lot of hours, you know, delving in. So I'm pretty sure within like a few months, I I would I went to everything, all the kings, you know, all the you know everything. Very common story with a lot of guys who discovered, you know, at that age, just the Freddie Kings, the Albert Kings, the Earl Kings, the, and then the more raw stuff, you know, the Sun House and the Robert Johnson, and you know the story. You've heard it a million times, but. It was the goosebumps. It it sort of it shocked me in a way. Like I didn't know music could do that. You know, classical music would make me float in a good way. Like it would take me away. Like I could listen to classical music. Jazz I thought was fun and interesting, especially when if I saw it live. Rock made me want to pump my fist in the air and and you know and high five my bros. You know, I mean. <laughs> ballads you know uh when my girlfriend would dump me and i'd start exercising again because i had too much barbecue but 
you know, I'd be out in the garage, for example, you know, skipping rope, listening to REO Speedwagon. I'm going to keep on loving you, but I'm crying <laughs> while I'm singing it and I'm skipping rope and crying. I mean, the music has affected me in different ways. This is too much information, isn't it? <laughs> I'm going to keep on loving you. You're the only thing I want to do. I couldn't do that. I don't skip rope, but that'd be hard. Anyhow, go ahead. Next question. (laughs) Okay, so you hear this and you think, I want to do that. Do you think that? Yeah. Do you think I want to be lead guitar player? Do you think I want to sing that stuff? Or do you think I want to do it all? Oh, oh! in the beginning? Yeah. Here's the thing about me that's really weird. I was also into weightlifting when I was young, and I got pretty strong. And all my friends were visualizing, like, it either was bodybuilding or, or powerlifting, and they were all visualizing, like, they would visualize, like, posing on stage or lifting, you know, weights and getting trophies. And I was just like, no, it just makes me not feel like crap when I worked out. I just felt better. But I got to the point where I could have been competitive in powerlifting, and it took years for anybody to convince me to go because I just didn't want the attention. I was the same way with guitar when I was in eighth grade. And this is me not being falsely modest. I just didn't want the—I mean, obviously since then something's happened. You know, I mean, I'm not uncomfortable now. Hopefully not. But at a young age, when I was in jazz band, uh, first year of high school— my dad tells a story about how in high school, uh, during the basketball games, uh, you know, I was in that pep pep band, you know, and the and they had part of the bleachers, you know, how those I don't know if you guys had these where the bleachers would expand like yeah. an accordion almost, yeah, well, those things were dangerous by the way, <laughs> God, <laughs> dog. But anyhow, um, they had the middle section pushed back, so that would be a place for the pep band, right? So I'm in the pep band and. And, uh, except you wouldn't know it because I was hiding <laughs> under the bleachers off to the side. So here's my dad's coming to see me and he's like, well, I hear him. <laughs> and we're doing stuff like, oh, what was that? I can't even remember the name of the tune. Uh, Keep uh, on loving you? No, that would have been perfect. No, I'd have been crying too much. No, it's like, <laughs> it was like a 60s. With the horns, but not Mac. It wasn't Mac the Knife. Well, we did Mac the Knife, too. That was pretty funny. Great song. And the other thing about that, too, is, like, I had a creative edge to me at that age as far as just, you know, being interested in the instrument and approaching it in different ways. And the other thing about that particular experience that stuck with me was that I never liked to play with a pick back then. I do both now, but I just was really intrigued by that sensation of my the flesh of my right hand feeling the strings and i just felt like it was a a valid way of playing more so more so than the sound that it created and the sound too and the sound and so but but my band teacher didn't feel that way and he's still alive so i won't mention his name but if he's listening thank you leo um (laughs) (laughs) i just oh wait i messed that up you can edit Edit that out. So anyhow, he would um, send me to the principal's office for not using a pick. Really? Yep. And after and and, and this is you know Flint school where the kids are kind of rough. So you know the principal thought it was hilarious. Like, <laughs> oh, you didn't use a pick, eh? Well, you better sit over there, pally boy. 
you're in trouble now. And they would all laugh about it for a whole hour while I sat in the office instead of being in class because <laughs> I didn't use a pick. And then, and then I got a little bit rambunctious with all of that. And the bass player and I would run notes up one of the strings, but we were on opposite sides of the room. But our but our speakers were next to each other. Our amps were next to each other. And in the middle of a song, I'd go, and the, or he'd do it. But we always waited till he was looking at the other, you know. Like he wasn't looking at either one of us, and then he couldn't tell who to send to the office. So I was a bit of a rebel. I was a bit of a rebel. <laughs> what albums that you would, I mean, you name one, the album King, but are there other albums that really made an impact on you and possibly affected you in such a way that it, it affects you today? Or I mean, it's made you who you are today? I mean, does Cheech and Chong's Up in Smoke count? Yeah. No, I was kidding. That's not true. I don't I don't do that stuff. I'm just definitely BB King's Live at the Regal as far as the blues root stuff go. Like I have a hard time finding anything that can match that energy. Um I can't even imagine being in the crowd, being in the audience at that show. Like mm-hmm. just like you I mean, because you've been to live shows, I would imagine, before the <laughs> pandemic. <laughs> Nothing so, like that one. Exactly. It's kind of like where everybody's so present moment with, and they're hanging on his every word. They're hanging on his every guitar lick. It, it, the band is just tight and grooving, and, and it it's just like a whole other thing, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's almost like when you hear live rock albums, I almost, you know, you know a lot of those live rock albums, in the seventies and stuff, they, you know, uh, Frampton and Seeger and Cheap Trick and all them, all those albums. I feel like they probably went in after the fact, and you know, hopefully none of them are listening. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like they all go in and and kind of amp up the crowd response a little bit. Although probably not with Cheap Trick live at Budokan. I think that was probably legit, but maybe not. And so, but with BB King and. And even with uh, the other, so that's one of them, Live at the Regal. And then the other one that feels just really real to me as far as live recordings go um, is uh, the Donnie Hathaway live album. When the audience starts soul clapping and yeah, yeah. you just you just feel like, you know, nobody's, I mean, this is before cell phones, you, but, you know, nobody's texting or <laughs> taking selfies or they're back to the stage. Oh, look, I'm at a Donnie Hathaway concert. They're just, they feel like they're, you know. And then as far as uh, recorded albums, I mean, there's so many. Um, I have some hanging on my wall of my living room here. Uh, one of them is uh, the Freddie King uh, instrumental album, which was, was it called Hideaway? I can't remember what it was called now. I'm getting a mental block, but it was the Freddie King instrumental. Right. It had all those tunes on it. And then, um, oh my goodness, Beatles. That was later in life, actually. I didn't discover the Beatles till later in life. It was just a few years ago that I really dug in. Did you watch the Get Back documentary? I I did watch it. Yep. Okay, so and, like your like yourself, I wasn't. I didn't grow up with the Beatles. I mean, I knew them, but I wasn't. I didn't really get into music until they had split up. And just watching that was just amazing to me. Oh yeah. What did you get out of that documentary? You know, we were talking about Rush earlier when I was saying I was envious of people who could sit in the same room. Well, it wasn't. It was kind of like that, and it wasn't kind of like that, from what I could tell. You know, like, 
I think I feel like and again, I don't know. I I think I've seen a rush documentary too. I feel like with those guys, they would all go home for three weeks, learn their parts, come together for one song, and it was already like ninety percent there. When I watched the Get Back, it just feel felt like it was all unfolding in the moment together. You know, you know, it was sloppy and it was weird, and that just but it kept morphing and getting slowly better and better and better until the pinnacle. You know, when they were on the rooftop, and you're, it, I literally cried. I mean, during that scene, it was like for a couple of reasons. One, it was like oh, they did it, and then, like, oh, wow, this is their last time they're going to play live together. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so there was, like, this it was bittersweet. But the other thing I got out of it was uh, I kind of learned more about the individual characters. I mean, I just felt like Paul McCartney probably was the more brilliant arranger and and uh, maybe in a melodic sense, you know, a little more sophisticated than Lennon. But then Lennon definitely had that the heart of rock and roll, if you will, and and then I felt like George, being younger and never, there was that there was that relationship thing that they probably had since the band started, where he was the younger kid. And they just didn't. They would kind of respect him, but not really. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I don't think he knew how to communicate it yet either. He wasn't old enough to know how to really be his own advocate. So a couple of times I felt like he was being slightly passive aggressive. Look, I'll play what you want me to play or I won't play it. I don't care. Makes no difference to me. Blah, blah, blah. By the way, I'm I'm having relations with Ringo's girlfriend right now. Anyhow, um <laughs> So I'm good. And Ringo? So, oh and Ringo seemed like the most either he was like super, super stoned <laughs> and or he was the most patient man on the face of the planet because he would mm. just lean forward and listen. He just didn't. Did you did you get that? Like he just seemed really patient. Yeah. Like I'm gonna see where this is gonna go. But when he came in, I mean. Oh, he was great. Yeah, he was amazing. He was, he was great. His parts were great. Everything. But he but he didn't seem like he was get he. I think they had a very interesting working dynamic. It really was clearly, and we've already known this. Lennon and McCartney driving the bus. And then George having a lot to say, but nobody to listen, for the most part. And then Ringo just acknowledging, like, hey, I got something I do well, but let me know when you're ready for me. Yeah. You know, which is which is an interesting dynamic. And w- watching it, you know, having been in a lot of different bands and watching um, that dynamic amongst all of them, it, it really highlights why bands break up. Because it's hard to mesh such strong, passionate personality sometimes you know um but it was also interesting that i thought they got along way better than i imagined they would oh yeah it was brighter than i thought it would have been and i didn't think of a yoko as much of a villain as 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 i've thought of in the past i'm not saying she was perfect or that she was not somewhat culpable for some of the tensions but i think i think that's giving her too much credit to say that she broke up the beatles yeah you know but i and i mean i'm Still not a fan of her singing, but that's another <laughs> or whatever or quotation marks singing. But okay, so not really related. But you're thinking about you're in the process of putting together a new album, dude. It's totally related. It's going to be better than any <laughs> Beatles album. <laughs> that's what I, that's what I meant to say. Speaking of masterpieces. <laughs> Tell me about the new album you're working on or you're you're conceiving. The first track is going to be called All You Need Is Love. (laughs) 
has, that hasn't been taken, has it? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I sometimes I think I'm nuts for doing this, and yet I'm still gonna do it. I'm still gonna make. I mean, not the podcast. I think this is fun, but I meant the album. <laughs> I think I'm nuts for making another record. Why? Why do you think it's you're nuts? Well, nobody. I mean, you know the whole. I mean, this is this is nothing new. I mean, I mean, come on. Look, look at the whole present Spotify thing that's unfolding from one artist to the next. And no, I think it's very valid. Yeah. But yeah. you, I think you made a comment about what it means to you. Yeah. Well, I mean, people don't consume music in the same way, right? Right. And it also feels like I always thought I had ADHD, but holy smokes, man! People are consuming entertainment in ten-second intervals now. Yeah. So I don't even know if somebody could make a song, uh, a, a, an Abbey Road medley, for example, and hold somebody's attention anymore. I mean, it, it'd hold my attention. It'd probably hold your attention, but I don't know. I don't know how people are consuming. And, and then again, it, it, the question is, well, what's your intended market? Well, I don't really have an intended market. I just want to make a good record, and whoever likes it, likes it. You know, But, I mean, don't you look at it as, I'm a musician, this is what I do? Yeah, yeah, no, this is the other thing. It's like, why are you going to take another breath, Greg? I don't know, I kind of have to. You know, so this is the same thing with making a record. Why are you going to make another record? I just feel, like, compelled to make another record. And the one thing I can say about record being short for recording sometimes people say they don't make records anymore <laughs> well they do but the uh the process of recording and writing and producing and all that stuff theoretically will make you a better musician so you so there's the utility in it so if you can afford to do it and even if you do or don't break even if you can afford to do it it's probably in one's best interest professionally at the very least they make for i mean at the very least well, at the very least, my joke from the stage is they make great coasters, the CDs. But but in all seriousness, at the very least, they can function as like sophisticated business cards for slightly better gigs, you know, because it's still competitive market out here. Um, and then the other thing is it's like I'm really driven and curious about things like – this is going to get weird probably, but – the production aspects of it, I often think of mixing and production as being another musician almost. And I don't mean that in the auto-tune, fix-everything-cheater sort of way. <laughs> I mean that in terms of like uh, some people will approach like a blues record and they have a favorite guitar tone they have when they play live, right? And they'll maybe make a blues record. And this is all good. None of this is bad. But they have a certain spring reverb sound they want to put on, a certain vintage, old vintage amp sound. And then they write a song that maybe is an original. And they'll kind of superimpose the sound that they like in isolation. They, I like this sound of a guitar when I'm playing, blah, blah, blah. I like it when it's the, the, the highs, the trebles are here, the lows are there. Like I, I like the reverb here. But then when you put it in the context of an original tune, and maybe you have some slightly different instrumentation, certain techniques don't mesh as well, and they may not tell the story as well. The simplest way I can do it is to say some songs sound good when the vocalist has massive reverb on their voice. Sometimes it sounds even better when there's no reverb. Right. And maybe a little bit of compression after the fact. Because when there's reverb, 
I mean, they have different ways of mixing the two, so you can get both. Like, But the thing is, you probably picked up on this, is when you don't have reverb, it sounds like the person's right in front of your face, and it's kind of intimate, and it's cool. So if you're writing a song, that's... But then there's no hard set rules. I mean, you can have an emotional, intimate, personal song that has massive reverb, and it still works. On the flip side, some of the early Beatles songs that, that were kind of fun, that didn't seem that intimate, are in mono, not stereo, and... There's no reverb on Paul's voice, so there's there's irony, if you will, if, if you'll allow the, you know that term, and what technical things you experiment with to get your message across. So the arrangement, melodic, lyrical equivalent to that would be, you know, how major keys are supposed to be happy. Mm-hmm. Writing sad lyrics in a major key, <laughs> or writing happy lyrics in a minor key. One of the most hilarious examples of that for me would be Billy Don't Be a Hero. It sounds like you're in a parade for Christ's sake and some <laughs> dude just died. Just kind of, some dude just died in war and you're like, Billy, don't be a hero. You're like, you're marching down the street. You know, don't be a fool with your life. Your head's bobbing inside. What the heck? But it works. <laughs> and you're welcome for that earworm. Oh, I'm, I'm here for you. But <laughs> Oh, 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 the big one was Tom Jones' uh, when he's uh, Delilah, <laughs> he's like, it's about a guy killing a woman. <laughs> Na-da. Everybody sing. <laughs> killing a woman. You know, it's insane, man. But it works. Yes. Right? Maxwell Silverhammer. The Beatles. But I'm surprised that you don't mention the fact that you have these songs. That that's not the forefront of why you would do another album. What do you mean? Say again. You know, in a way that you know, obviously, you're going to record an album which is full of your songs. Oh, right, right, right. So I wonder why the songs, like, are there songs that you think need to be heard? Hmm. That's a good, man, you guys some good questions. This is not your first rodeo. I'm going to write a song about barbecue because I feel as though, no, I feel like, I feel like music, Oh, my goodness. Okay. What a great question. And I'm not... And, and Okay, so my first thought is this. If I can write a song that at the very least makes somebody have an enjoyable moment in their life, whether they like it or not. I mean, if they're making fun of me and it's still fun for them, go ahead. <laughs> but <laughs> either way, they're having fun. <laughs> Win. Ah, joke's on you, pal. <laughs> making fun of my song. No, but, <laughs> but, but you know, so, I, so for example, I've written ballads in the past. I have one called I Won't Give Up. You can, I Won't Give Up, Greg Nagy. There's a plug on YouTube. Where I had, I was in an airport heading off for a tour in California I was just going through my divorce, and I had Achilles tendonitis in my left Achilles. I could barely walk. I'm limping. You know, here's this guy, this white-haired guy, limping through the airport with a guitar over his shoulder. What a fool. And uh, going on a tour of California, and this bartender in the airport uh, there, she yelled, Greg Nagy? This never happens, okay? Seriously, never happens. I mean, it happened, but it never and I stop. I'm like, oh, well, this is a little weird. <laughs> um, so she comes up and she says, I have your song, I Won't Give Up, MP3, in my mor- alarm clock. 
I'm divorced. My son's finishing his last year of high school. I hate my job. He's going off to college. As soon as he does, I'm moving. I think she was moving. I forget where she's moving to, but to another state, someplace she always wanted to live. And I thought, wow, get get outside your own head, dude. You, somebody's telling you you your song meant something to them. And then I have another song. Called, these are true stories, you know. What I mean, and I have, and I remind myself of this sometimes, even if it's just a few people. I'll know I'm ready. Also on YouTube and Spotify and fine retailers everywhere. Um, I'll know I'm ready. I had a guy tell me it literally kept him from committing suicide. And I went, I was at a gig when this guy told me that. And all I was thinking about is, I can't hear myself with a monitor. The lights are too bright. They're in my eyes. Blah, boo, hoo, hoo. This guy tells me this on the break. And it pulled me right out, right out of my self-absorption. And, you know, I was like, wow, this is meaningful. So if I can make something meaningful and somebody else happens to get something out of it, you know, that's a lot, man. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. I mean, I'm grateful for that. Um, and and there's other stories like it. So I, it's 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 never really been an issue about. I'm not deluded about it. I I I, I break even on every album practically. That's about it. And um, and I've never I've never thought about fame. In fact, I might have self sabotaged a few times over the years just to avoid it because I. I hadn't mentioned this, but I didn't get into I didn't get into playing professionally until '92. I mean, I came out of high school in '81, so I just had lived some other life experiences. So I just was really passionate about music, but I wasn't that hung up on like you know the idea of fame or being popular, or even being well liked for that matter. And it's and so it became more of just a is it meaningful, you know for whatever that's worth. Okay, so what? tell me about the new album. You have a bunch of songs written. Is there a theme? Is there... Oh, yeah. Why now? Um, well, we were starting it before the pandemic, and then we got very vigilant about, you know, being in there. Not, not vigilant. Uh, well, just concerned about being in the same room. And I prefer to be in the same room. I mean, with today's technology, you can, you know, lay tracks and... I feel like there's something about sitting around in a circle and being able to face each other and 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 then maybe hopefully new ideas will come just you know there's something about even just the subtlest there's an energy towards sitting in the same room with musicians facing each other and just responding that's the only way I can put it um do you love the process I do and yeah I do I like the process it can be um very revealing i think the very first time i made a record i think the only analogy i could come up with would be looking at myself in a speedo in a full-length mirror after a year of barbecue Hmm. oh my gosh how 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 did this happen and then you got to fix it or or don't look in the mirror anymore and by looking in the mirror i mean making a recording when you make a recording it's it reveals your strengths and your weaknesses more than maybe a live performance will. Anytime you can play back in a emotionally neutral setting, what you did, you can go, oh, wow, my pitch is really bad there singing or my time, my rhythmic stuff is off on that tune and didn't feel like that when I was playing it, you know, so it's very revealing. 
and I'm sorry about the visual I just gave you with the speedo, but I was trying to make a point. Um, <laughs> that you and will I can't never, get it out of my. That you will never. <laughs> well, actually, speaking of the cover art, <laughs> I thought it would be you on a oh, motorcycle, motorcycle. <laughs> like Bruce Green Greenway did. Um, well, you're giving me ideas right now, though. I mean, one idea is like being honest with ourselves somehow, you know. And 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 there's a lot of things about the last, without sounding too, you know silly about this it, the last couple of years has been a lot of things about with you know going through the pandemic and everything has been a lot of lying to ourselves not all of us some of us have been i feel been pretty honest or at least try to but there's something about when your own survival is at stake or threatened it could be your job well or your your life you know people can just Lie themselves to get, lie to themselves to get through it. One mm. is deny it, deny what's right in front of you. You know, and without being too preachy or too telly or too obvious in a song lyric, I mean, there's potential in song lyrics for that. Just being real, being human, trying to trying to trying to think about community above. You know, self not without negating the self entirely. Without those words, those wouldn't be the lyrics. Those, those wouldn't negating this I, yeah, I couldn't sing that but um but you, but you get what i'm saying like yeah. and and i feel like you know going back full circle i mean i'm though i think the beatles had songs like that there are a lot of people have had songs like that so the challenge comes you know how can i do it in a way where i'm nodding to what's present now what's around us now um i've got a song that i wrote with uh, jeff paris out of la jeff was a writer for polydor a&m for 23 years and it was going to be on the last record, and I'm kind of glad it wasn't, because it has more meaning now to me, even though we didn't write it with this stuff in mind, it has more meaning now, because it talks about isolation, uh, and it talks about uh, people not really, either really not allowing themselves to open up to others, or just simply unable for other reasons. And so the first line is, um, when you're walking down a city street in the light of day, uh, no one smiles as they pass each other by. They just look away. And everybody looks so worried and lonely. And I can't remember the next line. But the point is, wow. <laughs> you know, when I listen to them now, I go, oh, that has new meaning. You know, like just the distrust, like like feeling like like when we're kids, you know, and we're on the playground, you can sometimes sense like, hey, I wouldn't mind playing with that kid in the sandbox. And you and, and what you have in common is the sandbox and you jump in there and you play and you don't you don't talk about anything else. There's that. And in some ways you could say that's naive. Right. You know, but in other ways, it's like, no, it's open. It's mm -hmm. like, well, oh, so the name of the song is I want to know the real you. And I feel like as we've gotten more deeply entrenched, you know, over the past couple of years, understandably, you know, in our in our viewpoints and whatnot, people are getting polarized, you know, more and more. It's always been there, but it just seems like nothing brings it on like a pandemic. And it, the cool thing about The Real You is it was Jeff and I deliberately wrote it so that it could be read as either about a personal one-on-one -on -one human relationship 
or about the general idea of being open to meeting other people and listening to the to their life and understanding you know you may have more in common with them than not in common and uh, maybe yeah so you're hoping to record this in around the end of march yeah you still have to write some more songs is that going to be is it difficult to work under pressure or is that the way you prefer to work under that that's the way i like to do it speaking of jeff you know jeff jeff was one of those you know probably because he was on salary for a major label but he was one of those you know um day-to-day craftsmen like he held himself accountable i'm gonna he says i'm gonna write three songs whether they're good or or bad at least every week if not every day i mean the guy was super prolific and um and then i i'm more like under pressure shake it out of my sleeve i think there was a famous architect um frank lloyd wright i think was the one who who said that he shook his ideas out of his sleeve so it wasn't like he woke up every day and i'm gonna design something else today it was just kind of like he'd have weeks months of just nothing and then all of a sudden boom Mm-hmm. Look, there's a cool house with slanty roofs and stuff. I don't know. I don't know much about architecture, but you know, you get the idea. Um, and there's there's value in both. I think I'm just I I do believe I'm wired to be a you know sleeve shaker, if you will. Um, and the pressure works great for me. But like on the flip side, I've heard stories about certain artists knowing a hundred percent what everything was going to be before they walked in the studio. They knew the, the, everything. They, mm-hmm. they, they, and then, you know, it's good. Um, that's good, too, because if you're paying for studio time, <laughs> it's a little more economical. Um, but I like I like the serendipity. You know, I've never, I've never, um, I, 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 I know the rhythm section we're going to use. It's the rhythm section that uh, played with uh, Geneva Magnus uh, for years. Um, uh, Matt Teku and Gary Davenport. And Matt Teku played with uh, Bob Dylan's kid, um Jacob Dylan and Fiona Apple and uh, people like that, and he's just a wonderful L.A. drummer. And then uh, Gary's just—he lives in Florida. He's an amazing bass player, and but I've never worked with him, and so that's pressure. Like first, and the other thing is when you haven't worked with somebody who whose work you admire, it kind of makes you step up a little bit too. When you walk in there, you like you really don't want to stink in front of them because you know you, you, I'm like fans of their work. You know what I mean? So, so same with like with Bobby Murray, you know, when he calls me to do something, I'm kind of, you can't help but be on point because you, you revere the work that they've done. Bobby was guitar player for Etta James, as you well know, and to have him come in and have me sing something, it's like, I'm not going to be sleepy, (laughs) you know, so that that kind of thing. So I like the pressure. Do you have a title Um, in mind? Um... I was thinking about talking blues and barbecue, Mako, talking blues and barbecue. Oh my gosh, I might I might make that a song. Well, first of all, it's got the internal rhyme, talking blues and barbecue. <laughs> I'll make it an acronym and an instrumental, and only you and I will know. Um, no, I don't have a you know. Although the real you would be a good one, I'm pretty proud of that song. Um, it's a kind of R&B-ish, soul-ish type of tune. And it's exciting to know that you're going to be working on this in, in a few weeks? 
well, now that you put it that way, it's freaking me out. A few weeks. Ah, yeah. Um, <laughs> no, now I'm just freaked out. Thanks, Mako. I was no denying it. No, no, it, it, no it, it is exciting. Yeah, it's very exciting. And um, I don't know. Again, I probably alluded to it earlier, you know, in so many terms, why not? Why not just, you know, go for it? You know, either it happens or it doesn't. You know. Well, it is who you are, and so, it is what what you do. Yeah. No, no, I have to do it. I got to do it. I'm looking forward. Did you want to? I don't know. Are you going to do the crowdfunding? Is that something you want to talk about? Or? Yeah, yeah. I think I'm. You know, I did a Kickstarter on the last one. And that definitely helped, and so we're planning on doing one with this one. I, I you know, I got to figure out what, exactly what that's going to look like. Um, but I'll uh, I'll have it on my I'll have that link on my website soon and and also on social media people are on facebook i'm there so well thank you for doing this oh man i just had an absolute blast i i, I can't even thank you enough it's been many years so it's nice to catch up with you and, and thank you for for doing this and thank you so much for all your support and also you know getting me people like bobby murray because that was that was a fun interview and i was thrilled to talk to him so thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. My pleasure.